0: You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer.
2: And I'm Oret Okumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: The Sahel, just south of the Sahara Desert, has long been threatened by jihadist insurgencies. As seemed inevitable, the terror has now come to Burkina Faso, costing 3,000 lives already this year. Our correspondent pays a visit.
2: And K cars are taking rural America by storm. They're pretty cheap and weigh a fifth of a typical Ford pickup truck. But with their increasing popularity comes new competition for American car makers and some legitimate questions about their safety.
1: But first, Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, is the most talked about opponent to Donald Trump in the race for the Republican presidential nomination. He hasn't officially launched his campaign for the White House, but he has raised over $100 million to help support a bid. Along the way, Mr. DeSantis has also picked some headline grabbing fights not least with Disney.
0: They've been treated much different than Universal, SeaWorld and all these other places and so they're upset because they're actually having to live by the
3: same rules as everybody else. They don't want to have to pay the same taxes as everybody else and they want
1: to be able His legislative agenda has been no less combative. From abortion to gun rights, it seems there's no right-wing issue he won't pursue. That's made easier because Republicans hold a two-thirds majority in both chambers of the state legislature. Whether this bullish approach will help or hinder his chances on the national stage, though, is another question.
4: Florida is a critical swing state in presidential elections, and it still has a large share of voters who are registered as independent.
1: Alexandra Sewitch-Bass is The Economist's senior correspondent for Politics, Technology and Society.
4: But in the last legislative session, a red tide has washed over the state. There's been a shift to the right that was meant to showcase Ron DeSantis' conservative credentials. But instead, many donors are raising concerns.
1: So what do you mean by this red tide in the legislative session?
4: Two things are happening in Florida right now. One is that Ron DeSantis, the governor, he's using this legislative session as a stage to show what... America might look like under his rule. And so that's why we've seen him push a lot of policies that will get the attention of Republican primary voters. The second thing that's happening in Florida is that last November, Republicans won the largest super majorities they've ever had. And that has also empowered them to push policies without having to water them down for more moderate Republicans. And certainly, they don't have to make any compromises with Democrats. The legislature is both trying to help Ron DeSantis attain his goal of the White House But then there's also something else that's afoot, according to my interviews. Some people have suggested that the legislature is afraid of crossing Governor DeSantis because he's shown that he has a vengeful streak. But whatever's motivating this, there's been a very large effect on the tenor of this legislative session, as Florida Speaker of the House Paul Renner told me.
5: Well, in a typical session, uh, there's usually one theme, you know, maybe we've done water policy or education policy. I think this year will be remembered for handling major issues in depth across a wide variety of topics, whether it's tort reform or universal school choice, a whole variety, I can count dozens of, of things. that
4: we- Speaker Renner told me that the legislature has accomplished in this one session what they normally accomplish in four sessions. And it's notable that nearly every one of Governor DeSantis's legislative priorities has passed, as have a few bills pandering to him.
1: So talk me through what kind of legislation we're talking about here
4: we've seen a lot of attention on culture war issues new laws pass related to guns there's a restrictive new six-week abortion ban and then we've seen a lot of anti-woke Crusades that Governor DeSantis has become quite famous for these involve restricting diversity equity and inclusion initiatives and some other issues like education and what children are taught in schools we We've also seen some laws that really pander to Governor DeSantis as he tries to run for the White House. One makes it impossible for journalists to request public records of travel. The ostensible reason is for his security and safety, but it even bans past record requests. So it raises questions about what the real purpose is.
1: And how is all of this going down with the people of Florida?
4: I think that it's still early and people are just getting to grips with exactly how much has happened over the last six weeks of the legislative session. But I do think that some of the issues that the legislature is grappling with are not necessarily the issues that people say are their top priorities. Affordable housing, for example, ranks at the top of voters' agenda, followed by the economy as so many people move to Florida and we've seen rents and home values soar in the state. Although the legislature did pass an affordable housing bill, no one thinks that it's really enough to deal with the issue. So many Florida watchers and donors are more concerned and disappointed with this session than they are happy because they feel like a major opportunity was missed to deal with the very real issues of Floridians rather than the politically divisive ones.
1: Because Mr. DeSantis is playing to a national audience, not to the constituents in Florida.
4: That's right. He's trying to get the average voter in Iowa or New Hampshire to pay attention to him. He's not necessarily thinking about the needs of... All Floridians. This session has shown a very different side of the governor than we had encountered previously, his vengeful side. And the most prominent example of this is his ongoing spat with Disney. That began last legislative session when the then CEO of Disney spoke out about what opponents call the Don't Say Gay bill, which restricts discussions of sexuality in public school classrooms. DeSantis swiped at Disney. Disney for trying to get involved in this debate. Recently, Disney sued the state for what it calls its unconstitutional actions and trying to restrict the free speech of the company. And then recently, the DeSantis appointed board countersued Disney. His opponents, such as Florida Minority Leader Fentress Driscoll, say the tendency to go after anyone that gets in his way will be a problem in higher office.
3: That's the rub with this guy. If you disagree with him, he will come after you with a vengeance, will not let it go. And is that really what we want in terms of the leader of the free world and the person who's going to be leading our military? Is this what we
4: want? But it's not just Mr. Desantis's critics who are expressing disappointment and disbelief about his continued bashing and conflict with Disney. It's also some of his donors. They feel that Disney has been a miscalculation. They also have been disappointed by his stance on Ukraine, where he's described it as a territorial dispute that America should not get involved with. And they feel that he has gone too far on issues like abortion.
1: So with all that in mind, should he run? Do his prospects look plausible?
4: Recently, we've seen support for Governor DeSantis dip. In November, 46% of people polled by The Economist and YouGov favored the governor, and just 39% Donald Trump. Recently, the situation has reversed with 53% of Republicans favoring Donald Trump as the Republican nominee in 2024, and just 31% who favor Governor DeSantis. We've seen that surge in popularity in part due to Donald Trump's legal woes and support for him in the aftermath. But I do think that some of this comes from Governor DeSantis misplaying his hand as well. And so I think there's a big question about how quickly Ron DeSantis's light might fade.
1: And regardless of what happens on that national stage, what do you think will become of the DeSantisism he leaves behind in Florida?
4: A lot of people are already thinking about uh, Florida post DeSantis and are hoping that some of the policies that he's pushed through this session will be reversed. But his impact is going to be felt far beyond Florida. We've seen other states that are controlled by Republicans start talking about some of the things that he's put on the agenda. So the don't say gay bill that is now law in Florida is being discussed in other states, including Texas. And universal school choice has also been a talking point. So whatever happens. Happens. we're going to see other states start to look a little bit more like Florida, regardless of whether Governor DeSantis is successful in his bid for the presidency.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Alexandra.
4: Thank you, Jason.
0: You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash
2: Bonds.
3: I recently visited a primary school to the north of the capital of Burkina Faso, which is in central West Africa.
1: Kinley Salmon is an Africa correspondent for The Economist.
3: And what I saw was every classroom in this school block in this dusty expanse on the edge of a village practicing what to do if jihadists were attacking. Uh,
4: so, vous oui. Oui? Moi, je pour
3: and the teacher and the visiting people from UNICEF who've been supporting the program were saying, can you show us what to do? And the children would say yes, and then a whistle blows. <whistles> and these children, as quietly as they possibly can, pull close the shutters in this classroom and dive under the desks. Takes some noise getting under the desks, but after that, it's very quiet. The hope is that the jihadists that are attacking might skip that classroom and pass on elsewhere, or might think there's nobody there. The risk is a daily reality in these schools. And I spoke also with students there who had firsthand experience of jihadists attacking. The school has hundreds of children who've had to flee there from other parts of the country where the jihadists have attacked.
5: Mm -hmm. One of them
3: had only recently arrived. They said they fled their village because their neighbor was killed.
4: Mm
3: -hmm. And this 12-year-old girl told me that she was good friends with the children of that neighbor who was killed by jihadists. So it is a horrific situation.
1: And you say that the risk is real and growing for these kids?
3: Yeah, very much so, unfortunately. I mean, there has been a really strong rise of jihadist violence throughout the whole of the Sahel. This is the area running across Africa, south of the Sahara. And Burkina Faso is really now in the middle of this jihadist crisis. These are jihadists that have local grievances, but are also affiliated to Islamic State and also a separate group affiliated to Al-Qaeda. And last year, in Burkina Faso alone, that conflict claimed 4,200 lives. But it's getting much worse. In just the first three and a half months of this year, it's already taken about 3,000 more lives.
1: And we've spoken lots of times before on the show about the jihadist threats in neighboring Mali. This is then connected to that.
3: Yeah, very much so. Mali has been suffering from this right back since 2012, 2013. Neighboring Niger as well is being hit by terrorists. And now Burkina is in it too.
1: And what's being done to counteract it all?
3: Well, Western countries in particular have been trying to help in the past, both with development aid and then in Mali, in particular with troops on the ground trying to train the region's own armies and to conduct raids directly against the terrorists. But sad is in reality, those have had very little success. France, which is the former colonial power in the region, had a large number of troops in Mali in particular since 2013. Other countries, Germany and the United Kingdom, have contributed to a UN peacekeeping mission in Mali. Yet all these efforts really have failed to halt the rise in insecurity. And it's also taken a a real political toll on democracy. In Mali, there was a two-step coup that began in 2020 and was culminated in a second step in 2021. And that junta doesn't seem to have made any improvements. In fact, they brought in Wagner Group, the now famous Russian mercenaries who are also operating in Ukraine. But the main effect of that seems to have been to sort of ramp up violence against civilians more than anything else.
1: So do you get the sense that the same kind of progression is now going to befall Burkina that befell Mali?
3: Oh, very much so, and in many ways it, it already has, unfortunately. At this point, the government controls perhaps only about 40% of the country. And on the political front too, last year Burkina Faso's civilian government was overthrown by soldiers in January, and they in turn were ousted in a second coup later in the year. Uh, and that new junta leader is, is a 35-year-old captain, Ibrahim Traore, and he's also followed Mali in taking a dim view of French help. He threw out 400 French commandos who'd been based near the capital until quite recently. The humanitarian toll of of all this chaos and instability has also risen just incredibly rapidly. The number of displaced people in the country at the end of 2018 was about 56,000. It's now 2 million people, which means about 10% of the population of the whole country has now been forced from their homes.
1: And it sounds as if you don't have a whole lot of faith in the new military government's ability to, to deal with all these problems.
3: Yeah, I mean, the the new junta in Burkina Faso in particular is just overwhelmingly focused on war as a response. They've been increasing airstrikes a lot, using drones and attack helicopters. They've massively increased the number of people in volunteer militias, you know, recruiting 50,000 people last year, for example. And they've recently said they're going to do a general mobilization. So that also allows them to just force conscription on people. There is plenty of support for this, at least in the capital, but that's in part because The government has pretty effective propaganda, including routinely showing drone strikes on TV. But the the flip side of all of this is that there has really been a sharply increasing evidence of attacks on minority groups, especially a Fulani ethnic group who are often accused without evidence of supporting the terrorists. And this seems to be accelerating, you know, what are essentially ethnic massacres where these militias or soldiers show up in a town and kill all the men in it based on their ethnicity. And so military alone just doesn't look like a solution to this. Most analysts think these atrocities re- fuel recruitment, that keeping the schools open and providing basic services would also help in this fight against jihadism in a different way. And, and that just isn't a priority for the government at the moment, it seems.
1: And so the prospects generally then for Burkina Faso don't sound very good.
3: Yeah, unfortunately, I think for now, the future looks very worrying. There's likely increased ethnic polarization, very likely more of these atrocities, particularly against ethnic Fulani. And then there's a real possibility that the Wagner group, who's already in Mali, may also be invited into Burkina. Some people think there are already some trainers in the country, even if not on the front line. The other risk, clearly, is is for the region, the risk of large-scale terrorist attacks in capital cities in places such as Dakar and Senegal. And there's also a steady spread south across borders into Ghana and Ivory Coast, which threatens to destabilize the wealthier and more densely populated coastal strip in West Africa. So it's a really worrying mix and you can't even rule out yet another coup, unfortunately, particularly because these military leaders in both Burkina and Mali grab power, sort of promising that they alone could improve security, but they've manifestly failed to do so.
1: Kimley, thanks very much for your time.
3: Thank you.
2: Drive around Middle America, and you'll quickly get a sense of how much people love their huge, powerful trucks.
0: This one's for the builders. The people who build this country, this is the truck they've always trusted.
2: High built torque, like lots of horsepower, and the larger, the better.
0: Built for those who know that towing and torque and connectivity aren't truck ad clichés. They're things they use to make a living. Get the this job done right.
2: Be strong, like a rock. And all those other things you hear in the classic advert.
0: Producing the most powerful line of engines ever in a Chevy truck. Vortec.
2: But in rural America, there's a surprising counter-trend to this love of ever-bigger
5: vehicles. So K-cars are these tiny Japanese vehicles.
2: Daniel Knowles is The Economist's Midwest America correspondent.
5: In Japan, vehicles are taxed according to how much they weigh and how big they are and K is the smallest class and K trucks specifically are the pickup truck version of that so they have these very small pickup trucks that are less than six feet wide not much longer than that and they weigh as little as five or six hundred kilograms you know in comparison to a new American pickup truck something like a Ford F-150 which might weigh three thousand kilograms depending on how it's configured so they these very small vehicles and in rural america people are importing the japanese ones more and more they're falling in love with them you might say
2: okay so how is the experience of owning one of these trucks different from owning a more traditional commercial
5: truck well basically what a lot of people told me is that modern american pickup trucks are not really that useful as work vehicles often. They're huge, for one thing. They're very expensive. You know, you're starting at a minimum of forty or $50,000 for a new truck and going up to a lot more than that with all the kind of bells and whistles. And they're sort of essentially more like luxury cars. Most of them have four seats, a double cab, and they are very expensive to repair, anything like that. Whereas these little old pickup trucks, they really appeal to people who are often... Car people and vehicle people, because you can kind of modify them quite easily. You can repair them very cheaply. You know, you can understand them. They're quite simple. They don't have onboard computers and all that kind of stuff. I spoke to a guy in northern Wisconsin who told me how you can fit tracks to them. And because they don't weigh very much, they're really good for taking out on frozen lakes for ice fishing. So they've got this kind of huge fandom of people who basically like the simplicity of them, how easy they are to modify, the cheapness and the kind of versatility of them in contrast to a kind of modern, you know, pickup truck which is basically a sort of luxury SUV pretending to be a work vehicle that that is not actually always that useful for the sort of hauling stuff around or the working off road that the kind of people buying these K trucks are looking for
2: so how did these tiny Japanese trucks end up in America in the first place?
5: So essentially, American law stops you from just importing, you know, any foreign vehicle unless it complies with a whole bunch of very strict safety regulations and various other things. But there's a carve-out if the vehicle is over 25 years old that says you can still import it. And that's basically intended for sort of collectible vintage cars, so you can still import your old Jaguar type or whatever. But that means that you can also import these older Japanese K-trucks. And then generally, you can get them registered so that you can drive them on the road. And that's how they're coming into the country, essentially.
2: Okay, so you've got the Japanese mini trucks contending with these Goliath American pickups. Is this something that the American automakers should be worried about?
5: Well, you know, I think they already are. One of the things that I heard from some of the people I spoke to, some of the dealers, you know, is getting harder to register these things on the streets. Some northeastern states, places like Maine, have made it much Harder if you import one of these hay trucks to get a license plate for it and to use it legally on the road. And there's definitely some theories that automakers, or, or if not automakers, then maybe car dealerships, which are often quite influential, have been noticing the competition here and beginning to uh, try and pressure local regulators to stop the import and the, the sale of these things. It's hard to know how true that is. I think there are also some legitimate concerns about the safety of. 25 year old vehicles that don't always have airbags or that sort of thing but there's a lot of worries about whether you know these kind of grey area under which these things can be imported and driven whether that might be closed soon but you know as long as it's still possible to import them I think they will keep attracting more and more devoted fans.
2: Daniel thank you so much for joining us.
5: Oh it's a total pleasure.
0: That's
1: all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at
2: And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. Dive in. Get a free 30 day digital subscription by going to economist.comslash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.